Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of the Grassroots Army podcast. I am, of course, your host, former Michigan gubernatorial candidate and leader of the Grassroots Army, where we are inspiring ordinary people to do extraordinary things. Now, Tucker Carlson interviewed Martin Shkreli last night on X, and it just uh, continues to show how corrupt not only our government, but what the judicial system is willing to do to not only put innocent people in the jail, but also to further their career, because it's just another example of corruption at its worst, because that's what they're doing with President Trump right now. So if we reflect back, back before the pandemic, you know, I used to be one of the guys that was falling asleep on the watch. You know, I I knew that there was corruption in the government. There was corruption in politics and in the judicial system. But by and large, everyone that was there, it was for the common good. It was for the people by the people. Right. But as time goes on, we continue to see these bad actors and actresses of what they're willing to do to silence their opposition, to throw people in the jail, innocent people in the jail for not only to fuel their narrative, but to silence their opposition. The same thing is happening right now with the Nashville Manifesto. Now look, Stephen Crowder, louder with Crowder, broke this story yesterday. He somehow got the manifesto and he released it. And the mayor is starting an investigation on how it was leaked. And what we saw was a lot of hate, a lot of evil towards white folks right? White privilege. I mean, it's really, really evil what this person was doing, what she was saying. And what the left is trying to do is cover it up. Because again, it doesn't go with their narrative of the alphabet mafia right now. So Facebook, YouTube censoring it. The only one that's not censoring right now is just a community note on it is X. Everyone else is trying to silence this. And that should be very concerning. And this is, again, just more proof that we are living in a banana Republic. They are willing to do everything they can to not only keep in the power, but to silence their opposition, silence free speech. Because as Americans, we just want to be told the truth. We'll figure it out. And that's why if the Republican Party can unite over the next year, we are going to clean house because most of Americans, at least over 65% of them, They're sick and tired of everything that's going on right now with the border invasion, with inflation, with the lies, with Joe Biden and his son. I mean, the list goes on and on and on with the corruption. And people just want real now. So let's get into this interview right now and allow you to hear some of this guy's story. And you can watch the entire interview over on X if you follow Tucker Carlson, which I strongly encourage you to do. Tucker has been doing some fantastic interviews, and I'll do everything that I can to bring bits and pieces of that interview. But if you want the whole interview, go on X and follow Tucker, and you can watch the entire interview. It's worth the watch, folks. He's been called the most hated man in America because he jacked up the cost of a life-saving drug. Raise the price of a life-saving drug 5,000%. So he could get filthy rich, an even bigger jerk than we first thought. There's no excuse from going from $13.50 to $750 for one pill. Breaking news, we have the verdict now for the former pharmaceutical CEO, Martin Shkreli, seven years in prison. And so forth, like, you can't do anything about this. It's, it's, it's a sovereign right of a business. It's not sovereign, but it's very like cherished right of a business to be able to choose its price for its product. And, and you, this idea that you could interfere with that right is so anti-American, so against everything I learned in school and in business that it was like um, just surreal that that 
somebody thought they had that kind of power over a company. Imagine her trying to tell Tim Cook, hey, your iPhone is too expensive. You got to lower the price 200%. What does an iPhone cost? It's like a thousand bucks. And everyone kind of has to have one. Yeah. Does anyone complain about that? Nope. Why do you think, I, I do think there's a lot of, fair or not, I, I think you think it's unfair. I, I probably have the other position, but there is a lot of like resentment toward pharma. Do you think yeah. that was part of it? Oh, absolutely. It's the most hated industry uh, of all the industries. And, and I, uh, I remember challenging, they kind of brought me up in CBS to be a, an expert um, you know, speaker on a panel about uh, drug prices. This is when the EpiPen, this is Joe Manchin's daughter, yeah, yeah. raised the price of EpiPen uh, for the same reasons. And I feel totally legitimate reasons. And uh, everyone was aghast you know, that uh, people can't afford EpiPens now. They're really important medicine and everyone's screwed. And I asked the CBS people, I said, hey, do you know, do you know what the net margin of CBS is? No clue. So do you know what the net margin of Mylan is, the Joe Manchin's daughter's company? CBS makes twice as much profit as, as Mylan. So you have a company that makes a life-saving medicine, EpiPen, which literally could, could be the, the dis- difference between life or death. And then you have a company that makes reality TV shows and, and sensationalized and news. Lies. Yeah. yeah. And, and one of them, which one deserves profit? You know, I, I think capitalism is a, a function that sort of assigns profit to the deserved. And um, in this case... You know, this pharma company, Mylan, makes like one out of every 10 medicines in the world, and they kind of deserve the right to stay in business and keep doing that. Whereas, you know, you know how I feel about CBS. Yeah, and and for good reason. Um, so y- y- you're running this company, you get attacked in public, you become a prop in the Hillary Clinton campaign, the media, as always, on cue, aligns their coverage with her propaganda priorities. They're sort of a seamless unit, the Hillary campaign, CBS News, NBC, Shep Smith. Um, but your job at that point is to sort of bow your head and say, busted, you caught me. I'm sorry. I'm going to give money to breast cancer research. Why it, didn't you do that? It wouldn't have, it would not have been hard to resign, even like even stage a, a firing, you know, and have my board tell my board, say, you guys can fire me to make this look good. So our company can continue and be successful. Yeah. And like, you know, usually that's the, the solution is off with their head of the CEO. Uh, or the n- number two option is, is a PR campaign of laying low. <laughs> you know, you pay, right. you pay a big DC PR, you know, firm $300,000 and you, they just tell you to, you know, don't say a thing. And that's, you know, this will blow over the news cycle will change. And I dug in because, you know, I really felt like a few different dynamics are at play. The first is that CEOs are not allowed to have personalities anymore. You know, and I think you see the, the handful that do the Elons and, you know, others, you know, they get criticized routinely for their personalities. And what corporate America and boards want to see is a CEO that's, you know, just completely, you know, uh, impervious to attack. And that eat means, a massive pile of dung and keep going. Yeah. 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 I, I think that, you know, the, so when you, when you have a personality that's defiant or, or something that you want to be, um, you know, a hill that you'll, you're willing to die on. For me, that hill is capitalism and it's our American way of life. And it's this hill that, no politician can tell us, business people, what our prices should be. I know, but Hillary Clinton, you, you gave her the finger. Like, you didn't expect to get arrested when you did that? I think that I, I was a little naive that, you know, um, <laughs> that what we learn in school, you know, that, that when we pledge allegiance and that we will learn about the First Amendment and all this stuff, that, that it's not connected, that the courts are not connected to the media and they're not connected to politicians and they're not, there's not this web that really does exist. And, and part of me feels like, is the web consequential or is it set up ahead of time? And sometimes it's. I want to talk about something because he had a good point. 
like he didn't want government to come in and tell him how to run his business. There's a there's a fine line to that because I, I'm going to play the devil's advocate here because social media companies, YouTube, Facebook, the old Twitter, they censored a lot of people like me. They banned. They still ban. They kicked me off of YouTube two weeks ago for exposing the border crisis. But you have to remember that's a company and they can do whatever they want. And we don't want government to come in and start to control these things because that's that's what we're trying to fight for. So not I, I understand how frustrating it is to get censored and the algorithms are kind of set up to keep um, conservatives quiet. But that's why you have to continue to grow other platforms and spread yourself out, like with Rumble and Telegram and everything else, because we don't want government to start controlling businesses. And that's what this guy's making a point of is like, look, I made a successful drug. And there's other companies, and his drug company was actually quite small compared to Pfizer and Stryker, who are always making profits, right? Why didn't they go after them? Well, because they're in in with the big pharma, these politicians, these corrupt politicians, they're in with big pharma, the lobbyists are. So they went after this guy because he was standing up to not only Hillary Clinton, giving her the finger, he stood up to Congress, was pleading the Fifth um, Amendment right? The right to remain silent. He was doing all these things and he wasn't going to back down. And unfortunately, the judicial system used his used him as an example, coincidentally, kind of like what they did with a lot of folks on January 6th. I, if you stand up against this, you're going to jail for a very long time. But to get back to my original point, we don't want government into our businesses. And so not only am I frustrated with social media companies, however, it's their company. If they want to censor me, they can. And it's really, you know, people try to make it a gray area, but it is kind of black and white. But just my two cents, even though I hate getting banned and terminated and censored. But that's why you have to continue to uh, grow other platforms so you can continue to get your messaging out. So my two cents. It's both. You know, I think the prosecutor that went after me, for example, he may or may not have gotten, you know, an order from somebody, but he may have just felt like, well, this is a guy that. I can make a career on. He's super unpopular. Let's send him to jail. Yeah, it's, it's I'm the good guy. He's the bad guy. What do the good guys do? We we corral them and throw them in jail. It's a story as old as time. And they're doing it to Trump as we speak. So just to, not to belabor the point, but for those who don't remember, um, this is part of the answer to the question, why were you so attacked and so hated? Because you didn't bow at all. So you were dragged before Congress to kowtow, um, but you didn't. Instead, you did this. Well, he has been called the most hated man America in America, and his latest actions will likely do nothing to change that reputation. Forced to appear before a congressional committee on drug pricing, former pharmaceutical CEO Martin Screlly refused to answer any questions, repeatedly invoking his Fifth Amendment rights. Here's part of a report from NBC's Ann Thompson. Appearing to smirk. Are you listening? And often inattentive. Yes. Former Turing Pharmaceutical CEO Martin Scarelli lived up to his bad boy reputation appearing before Congress. I intend to uh, uh, use the advice of my counsel, not yours. Posing for pictures instead of listening. It's not funny, Mr. Scarelli. People are dying and they're getting sicker and sicker. Scarelli declined to answer why the company he once led raised the price of a life-saving drug 5,000%. So just so you know, when a corrupt moron like Elijah Cummings speaks to you, Surf, 
He's speaking not as your peer, but as the feudal lord, and you have to pay attention, or at least pretend to pay attention. You of didn't course, know that. you know when you when you try to challenge authority, and you know that authority expects your your subservience. It's it's a really huge insult because you know if Congress doesn't have power, then who does? And it's really dangerous to sort of like cross that line of five out of eight charges because it's almost impossible. Let me just ask you. I want to I want to tie up the Dare Prim controversy before we move on. Um, so this is a drug whose price you raised by a lot, at least as on a percentage basis, thousands of percent. What's the price of it now? Well, it's generic now. So it's, it's, uh, it costs pennies to get now. So, you know, the price went up for a short period of time before generics entered the market and the free market kind of, if you believe there was a problem, which I don't, the free market fixed the problem. Lots of medicines are much more expensive than Daraprim. And I think that's, you asked about misunderstandings earlier. That's one of the biggest misunderstandings is that people said, well, if you raise something 5,000%, isn't it unaffordable now? And the answer is, of course not. It depends on the, the beginning price. You know, if something is one cent and you raise it up 50, 50x, you know, it's still affordable depending right. on what the product is. And so there are drugs in, in the, the drug system that are millions of dollars. And what folks don't understand is for rare diseases, uh, we talk about cystic fibrosis, uh, muscular dystrophy, there are not many people with these diseases. And in fact, cystic fibrosis makes toxoplasmosis, which is the Daraprim disease, seem extremely common. You know, toxoplasmosis is exquisitely rare. So you cannot afford to keep a company in business making Daraprim unless you raise the price. Interesting. And th- and this is conventional across all drug manufacturers. Well, what's really funny is um, I had a friend named Brent Saunders who ran Allergan, and he um, he was an investor in my fund. He was kind of a big shot in pharma, and he had Botox. And you know, as his flagship product. And he raised the price of Botox like 9.9% every year just to avoid a double-digit distinction. And the price increase on Botox costs the healthcare system hundreds of millions of dollars. The price, and, and the same thing at, at Abvi for Humira or Johnson & Johnson or Pfizer or Merck, their price increases, while they're smaller on a percentage basis, they cost the healthcare system billions of dollars and nobody talks about them. I had to raise the price of a minuscule tiny medicine that nobody takes. And nobody mentioned that uh, in the media. But to keep that medicine on the shelves, because I've done this before where a medicine that sells very little, less than a million dollars, a couple million dollars, the big pharma guys don't want to make that medicine. They want to get rid of it. And the only way that that medicine can stay reliably on the shelves is if it merits making. What's interesting is that, um, so you were not a big pharma company. Hillary Clinton is a slave to the big pharma companies. Obviously, they're obedient servant. Um, all the All the Democrats in Congress, many Republicans are also seemed to me as an outsider, they went after you because you weren't Pfizer. They'd get away with it. Yeah. I mean, I started two drug companies in my own hands. One became a, a billion dollar company. Uh, I was 28 when I started that company. Um, in pharma is, you know, c- kind of one of the more successful entrepreneurs. And the, what a lot of people don't know is we've invented a lot of medicines. We uh, got a drug FDA approved, which is through the gauntlet from phase one all the way to phase three. Very hard to do. Um, we were one of the first uh, companies to pursue intranasal ketamine for suicidality and depression. We made about 20, 30 different drug projects. In fact, Daraprim was one of the least significant things we ever did. And it became this like really big magnifying glass on, on quote-unquote corporate greed. To this day, I never made a dollar from Daraprim. 
Hey, quick question for you. Are you someone who wants to be fit, healthy, and happy? And what if I told you you could get your dream body by simply just listening to a podcast? I'm Josh. And I'm KG, and we're the hosts of the Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast. Listen, we get it. Fitness isn't easy. Carbs, no carbs. Just stop, okay? It doesn't have to be that complicated. And that's why we made this podcast. We get straight to the facts so you can become your best you. So the way to check us out is click the link in the show notes or search Fit, Healthy, and Happy podcast on any of the major podcast platforms. We'll see you soon. Really? So yeah, it shows up December 2015. You've been the subject of all these news reports uh, about your immoral behavior. What did you think the FBI was doing at your apartment? Well, you know, I I had a fund from like three or four companies ago, and um, in in the hedge fund business, it's it's to be frank, it's 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 kind of an awful business, um, and it's a business that almost like I think half of all top hedge funds have basically been closed down for legal reasons. Uh, many hedge fund managers have gone to prison. It's it's a dangerous job um, because you are the symbolism of wealth. Like you are literally not making any product. You are taking information and manpower and converting some pile of money into a bigger pile of money. Right. And it's really, if there's anything in life that symbolizes greed and excess, and I don't necessarily believe this, but from the outside perspective, hedge funds are it. And so it's not hard to sort of point a finger at a hedge fund and say, there's some fraud here or there's some some transaction that I didn't like that that wasn't disclosed properly. And this is why hedge funds are like half compliance departments these days. Yeah. But um, they don't even care about the return anymore. They care about the uh, the compliance because it's, it's such a dangerous business. So they found some some irregularities in my old hedge funds. None of my investors ever lost a dime. In fact, they made quite a bit. In fact, one, one of my investors said he made about 30, 40% a year investing in my hedge fund. It was the second best hedge fund he ever invested in his life. And he'd been a hedge fund investor for 20 years and he invested with Soros and some of the best hedge funds ever. And, um, you know, I still went through the ringer and I'm kidding. So you were, um, charged with securities fraud. Yes. Who did you defraud? I defrauded the investors that, that made the 30, 40% a year. I'm, but I'm confused. I mean, how can you defraud someone who makes 30 or 40% a year? So it's funny there, you can be a victim of a crime without necessarily, um, losing anything. And while the, the government normally never pursues a case like that, they pursue cases where somebody opens their pockets and says, look, this I gave this guy a million bucks. Yeah, it's a Ponzi. Your the million bucks is gone. Yeah, right. And this guy's got a Lamborghini and I have um, a whole of a million dollars. What the hell? And, you know, that's, you know, I think why I was relatively spared on a sentence, even though I thought it was excessive. Um, I feel like, you know, the government normally never brings a case like that. And the Southern District is kind of known as the fraud sort of center. You know, they, they are pursuing Sam Bankman-Fried at the moment. Yeah. Um, they hop on these cases. They love these cases. The Eastern District isn't really, you know, the place to do that. Um, they mostly deal with visa cases, gun cases, drug cases, um, things like that, mob fraud. So that's Brooklyn, Queens, yeah. Long Island. Yeah, that's right. right. Not Manhattan. Yep. And it was Loretta Lynch's division. It's, it's a fairly political division. And, you know, the person that prosecuted me is now a partner at a law firm and making, you know, a lot more money than he made before. So did you sense from the beginning that the, your prosecution was political? Yeah, no, I mean, I, I know it was. You know, it, it, and when you say political, it's not a left or right thing necessarily. It's, um, it's actually more of a status thing. Every player in this symphony of, of grift has a different role to play. And you know, uh, the prosecutor's role is looking out for himself. 
you know, he's not interested in the community of, of New York City being, you know, better or worse than it was yesterday. You know, he's, he's a lawyer from a top law school. He's trying to make millions of dollars. And prosecuting Martin Schrott is a great way to do that. If it happens to make his bosses happy, great. But politics has nothing to do with, with, with his decision. You know, his decision is about how do I make more money? So they see, so someone sees you on TV and you're at the middle of the 15 minute hate ritual and they're like, let's look into that guy's hedge funds. Yeah. And I think, I think that's, that's part for the course. Sentenced yeah. to seven years in prison and you're a pretty young man at this point. What do you think? Well, you know, I take it a step, uh, a few months before that where I was on bail and happy go lucky. I was, I was actually, uh, getting into the software business at the time. And I figured, you know, <laughs> you're on you're on bail and getting into the software business. Yeah, I just I I was I was you know I was starting up a small effort to to look in. I needed to do something, and um, you know I was um, expecting to go to prison, but I, I didn't expect to go for four years. And I made a joke on social media about Hillary Clinton, and all of a sudden I find myself in front of a judge, and they're throwing me in prison. And what? Um, yeah, I I, uh, I said something stupid, snide. It was a joke, you know, as a comedian. Not all your jokes land. And I, I actually, one of the reasons I have a social media following is I think some people find my stuff funny. And, um, you know, I try to poke fun at power and authority and, you know, all Good, kinds yeah. of people who need to be taken down a peg. And I, you know, I try to do that. And, um, you know, this joke fell flat. It was some silly joke about uh, Hillary Clinton's DNA. And it got taken the wrong way by a, actually a New Yorker reporter, kind of flagged it. Um, this guy named Ali, uh, he sort of flagged it basically took it to the government and said, look at, look at this, arrest him. And they did. <laughs> and they, a New Yorker reporter didn't, they're such monsters. Yeah. They, 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 they said, this is a threat to Hillary Clinton. I'm not threatening anybody. The joke? It was about, um, if I can get a sample of her hair, I can determine through DNA analysis, one of my expertises that she may or may not be a lizard person, which is a completely, you know, it, it's a joke, obviously. You know, she's a human being. Uh, but, you well, know. There's some debate. That, but, I mean, but it was a joke. It's clear it was a joke. I don't want Hillary Clinton's hair. I'm not going to do a DNA analysis. No, you don't want her hair. No, you don't. It's all a joke. And, you know, they said this is a serious threat to her safety. The New Yorker reporter said this. And the government took it and ran with it. The judge said, you know what? You're right. Who would find this funny? And my lawyer's sort of sitting there saying, about half of America thinks this shit's funny. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, this, you know, very liberal judge from Berkeley. Great, great judge, by the way. Um, but she said, you know, this is a bona fide threat to her safety. Your bail's done. What? Get out of here. And, you uh, got sent to prison for, I guess you're not the first. I mean, we just interviewed someone else who's about to be sent to prison for the same. But I guess you can't make fun of Hillary Clinton. There are limits to the, the First Amendment. There are very strong limits. And, and I think that that's another thing I learned is that the First Amendment is this very qualified right. I mean, it's extremely qualified. <laughs> and uh, I had to learn that the hard way. And I became a you know constitutional law scholar uh, trying to understand why I can't make a joke. And, um, you know, it's frustrating. I think that, you know, making a joke about Trump would not have reached the radar of the government. You think? I mean, I just would have not been, you know, that interesting. Wow. So you went back to jail for how long? That's the, so, so basically from there, I had to stay until my sentence. My sentence was. Uh, how long were you in jail before trial? Um, I, no, I was already uh, convicted. So I was waiting oh. sentencing. And when it came time for sentencing, you know, I don't think that helped that, you know, she had to throw me in for, for this joke, you know, and it, it probably you know, my lawyer says it cost you at least another year or two um, because, you know, it's not a great thing. Did you ever reach somewhere. out to the New Yorker reporter and say, hey, thanks for throwing me in prison for a joke? It's interesting. That person became uh, who does like a lot of takedowns. 
um, that was their shtick. You know, is that they write these big takedown pieces of so this person's awful. Well, I feel bad for that person, actually. I'm, I'm Catholic, and I look at that person and say, this is a sad existence. And that person actually ended up, over the years, becoming depressed and suicidal and said, I, I don't want to live like this, tearing people down for a living. You know, and really, yeah, it was fascinating to see. My, my girlfriend, who's the reporter who covered my case, sent me in documents that this guy was literally on Twitter saying, I'm, I'm suicidal, I want to take my own life. And I look back and I said, those things aren't an accident. I mean, if you spend your life digging up dirt on people, trying to ruin their lives, and, you know, it must be a miserable existence. That's called karma. And I think the point of this interview, too, is not only with what I said in the beginning, but just we're I think we're just sick and tired of the double standard. And if you go back to the pandemic, when we were supposed to be locked down, you're not supposed to go out until the the Floyd stuff went on, then it was healthy to go outside. And it's just the double standard that these corrupt politicians continue to throw, do as I say, not as I do, rules for thee, not for me. Everything that they kind of push out on their narrative, you know, everything that's going on with the Nashville manifesto, it just goes on and on. And I think we're just sick and tired of the double standard. Again, provide the people with the truth, no matter how horrible it is, we'll deal with it and we'll figure it out. You can watch that entire interview over on X on Tucker Carlson's um, platform. I strongly encourage you to follow him and do just that, but I'll continue to do my part and to bring you up-to-date, accurate, and truthful information. So God bless you. God bless the state of Michigan, of course, and always God bless these United States.